Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're getting to know some of the real-life knights connected to English heritage castles. We'll look at three knights and four castles, in fact. These are Old Water Castle in Wiltshire, Farley Hungerford Castle in Somerset, Hadley Castle in Essex and Dover Castle in Kent. Joining us now to explain the lives of these knights of these realms are... Hello, I'm Paul Patterson and I'm a senior historian at English Heritage. Hello, this is Dickon Whitewood. I am the curator of collections and interiors for the East of England. Well, thanks both for joining us. Um, Before we talk about each of these men and their castles, how do we define a knight during the Middle Ages between the 1100s and the 1300s? Well, in a strict social sense, a knight was a knight because he was accorded the title by his peers uh, and used it himself, having gone through the process of being knighted. But of course, there was far more to it simply than that, starting from the ceremony of knighthood itself, often a long process which began with ritual bathing, a prayer vigil on the night preceding the actual ceremony, oath-taking, whereby the knight would swear to be loyal liegeman to his lord, and only then would it be followed by the dubbing, or being touched on the shoulders by the sword, at which point you would rise as a knight. But knighthood itself had a long history and has precedence even as far back as the Roman period when the eques, the equestrian class, were the ones who would fight on horseback. And indeed, horse riding was often associated with knighthoods. And in order to have a knight, you'd need land and wealth in order to arm and equip both yourself and the horse. And this wealth also enabled you to have the free time to train whether that was from a young age riding at the Quintain or later on as an adult participating in tournaments, all of which was preparation, of course, for the actual act of war, where knights were often the crack troops on the medieval battlefield. So broadly speaking, it's very military-based, also linked to the state and to the monarch and to land ownership and wealth. Mm. Indeed, but this this wasn't everything a knight could be, because knights were often the social and political elite, often literate, often intellectual. We know many knights that wrote books, so they aren't simply hard-headed soldiers. They were also could serve in administrative posts as being royal officers or judges, jurors, commissioners performing administrative tasks, all of which as well led to behaviours and a culture and an understanding of what it meant to be a knight, which revolved around the idea of chivalry, which at its highest form led to orders of knighthood, such as the Order of the Garter, 
Order of the Golden Fleece, which is really a sort of magnificent display in which the knights, in the case of the Order of the Garter around Edward III, who established it in the mid-1300s, as a flower, as it were, of chivalry and courtly behaviour that still leaves us today, I think, with an impression of a knight as the sort of knight in shining armour comes from <laughs> that kind of that courtly culture established during the medieval period. Yes, quite. Uh, gentlemanliness and uh, fair play, this sort of thing. Yes, of course, knights didn't always live up to no. that ideal. Even <laughs> even the best knights, you know, Black, the Black Prince ended up uh, sacking Limoges during the Hundred Years' War, and at which point most of the inhabitants of the town were unfortunately killed. So there were lots of contradictions involved with knighthood, but there were certainly a set of social, military and cultural values that they liked to adhere to, at least in theory. I suppose that's the same with any industry, really. There's always a, a bit of bending of the rules, even if there is regulation. Um. <laughs> uh, especially during war as well absolutely well let's move on to our first character then who had a castle in fact he had two hubert de burr born around 1170 but died in 1243 he's linked with dover castle in kent and hadley castle in essex can you tell us paul how he's connected to these sites well, it's first of all, it's it's a good thing to say that he, at the height of his power, he had more than two castles. These are just two examples. He was eventually immensely powerful. But his connection with Dover and Hadley, well, he was made constable of Dover Castle in 1200. So he's responsible for the welfare and the defence of the castle in the event of attack by those inside the kingdom or from those outside the kingdom. And given that Dover Castle was pretty spectacular at this time, only having been recently drastically rebuilt by Henry II, this is quite a charge that he's given. And in 1216 and 1217, he actually defended Dover Castle during two epic sieges in something called the First Baron's War, when there was actually a French army commanded by Prince Louis, who was heir to the throne of France. He was on English soil, assisting those barons which had rebelled against King John the circumstances around Magna Carta. Mm. And so he achieved some fame during his defence of Dover Castle. Yes, and we discussed this in a previous podcast, didn't we? We did indeed, yes. We did it in great detail, I think, in a previous podcast. So so, so for anyone who wants to catch up on the the detail (laughs) of that, you can. Yeah. So more than that, after the siege, uh, the castle had been pretty significantly damaged during those operations. And so Hubert is the person as constable who supervises its repair, its rebuilding, and indeed its modernization between around about 1217 and 1227. So we can still see a great deal of the work that Hubert carried out to reconstruct the castle in the aftermath of the siege. He's connected to Hadley Castle because Hadley Castle was situated on land that he was granted as one of the rewards for his service to the crown. And he was granted it in 1215. He was actually granted a a huge area of land called the Honour of Rayleigh, which is one of these big units of land that was granted to important knights in order to support their activities and in order to support the king when necessary. And so he's given this Honour of Rayleigh in 1215. There is an existing castle there, but Hubert decides that he wants to build a new castle on a virgin site. And so Hadley Castle is begun shortly after that grant in 1215. It's a personal castle. This is a baronial castle. It's not one he's given custody of on behalf of the crown. And he begins to build it shortly after 1215. 
And this is slightly west of uh, South End on Sea in Essex, isn't it? Yeah. So we we now know that um, Hubert de Burr had a number of castles, a, a big property portfolio of which these English heritage sites, Dover Castle and Hadley Castle. He was born, of course, during the reign of Henry II, but was he also born with royal connections? He wasn't born with any royal connections at all. In fact, his origins are quite uncertain, except that we're pretty sure he's from Norfolk, possibly a small place north of Norwich called, coincidentally, Burr, or Burr Next Aylsham is its modern name. And he seems to have been part of a family that held several smallish manors where his family were landowners, effectively. We don't know who his father was, but it's been suggested that it was somebody called William de Burr, who was a relatively unimportant knight of the time. But he certainly wasn't of royal blood and not from what you would call a major or a, an elite family. How did he gain this um, access to royalty, the monarchy, influence, etc.? Well, in short, we, we don't actually know. His, his early career is a little bit obscure. However, what we do know is that his older brother, William, was already in royal service. So he had gone to serve Prince John, who was later to become King John, of course, in the 1180s. And he actually accompanied John to a, an expert military expedition in Ireland in, in 1185 during the reign of John's father, Henry II. So Hubert must have entered royal service by some means, probably through his brother, perhaps, but ultimately it's more likely because he had feudal connections. The de Burr boys, as it were, may have been sponsored by a greater family. That was a usual route. And it has been suggested that it may have been the Warren family who held a huge barony, a huge area of land called Wormgay, which was also in Norfolk and within which the Burr family manors lay. We know, for instance, there was a William of Warren who was a royal justice in the reign of Richard I from about 1194. And it could have been one of the Warrens that promoted both of the de Burr boys in their careers at court. Did he get on well with uh, Prince John, who eventually became the dastardly and infamous King John? I would suggest he did. Obviously, he, he remains loyal during a very difficult period in the reign of King John, all the way through, you know, the period of Magna Carta and the, the First Baron's War. But he is one of the barons, he is one of the men who remains loyal. So I think they've got on pretty well. How would you summarise his career then, Hubert de Burr, after oh, he became man. established? Oh, it's massive, basically. Meteoric? Where, where... <laughs> well, what we know is this. Hubert probably was in London at court in the mid-1190s, but we don't know the how and the why. But by 1198, we know he's a chamberlain in Prince John's household. That is a considerable position. And in 1199, when John became king, he was made a royal chamberlain. Now, this was a position of considerable power. He had everyday access to the king and control of the administration and the finances of Prince John and then King John's private chamber. So he's an important official in the royal household. And so this gets him rewards. Like I said, in 1200, he became constable of the great castle of Dover, but also of Windsor, two major castles. Mm. He becomes sheriff in two counties, Dorset and Somerset in 1201. So he's responsible for the king's justice in the shires. He gets custodianship of several castles on the Welsh border, the Welsh marches as they call them. And he has a hundred men at arms under his charge. 
By 1202, he's sheriff of Berkshire and Cornwall. And the barons of the Cinque Ports, these important ports on the south coast of England, are instructed to give him the same service as they would the king when John goes abroad to France in 1202. In 1202 also, he's sent to Portugal to attempt to negotiate a marriage between John and the daughter of the king and queen of Portugal. So he's up there by by this time. Is that his ambassadorial role? Indeed. So this gives you an example of what Dickon was saying. It's not just about fighting. This man is a very capable administrator. It's about statecraft. Absolutely is. Yeah, sure. And he, he proves to be very good at that. In 1202, there were attacks on King John's territories in France by the King of France, Philip Augustus, Philip II. Basically, Philip is trying to take over the traditional lands held by the King of England in Normandy, Anjou, Maine and Poitou. Now, these are all in north and west central France, a huge block of land that's administered by the King of England. And the pressure on these lands from the King of France caused Hubert to be summoned by John to help him in this struggle. And so he becomes constable of a big castle in Normandy called Falaise, and then an even bigger castle on the border of Anjou in the Loire Valley called Chinon. This is actually where he makes his military name, because in 1204-5, he holds Chinon Castle in a year-long siege against Philip Augustus. It ultimately ended in defeat, but his skill in, in repulsing the repeated French attacks gains him a military reputation. Is this when he's sort of um, kept in the country as a semi-prisoner? Afterwards, yes. Basically, the siege is ultimately successful and Hubert is taken prisoner. He's, he's actually prisoner for a period of about two years. So he's not back in England until about 1207, when he has to, in a sense, begin to reclimb the ladder again. This is helped in 1209 by he marries a member of this Warren family that I was telling you about earlier. He marries Beatrice de Warren. And so he succeeded to the Wormgate barony in Norfolk. So this is a huge piece of land. And he also becomes guardian to her sons and they have extra land in Norfolk and Suffolk. And so you can see how he's beginning to gather a huge land portfolio, especially in East Anglia. Absolutely. However, in 1212, he goes back to France and he's there for about three years as something called a seneschal, basically a combination between governor, administrator and military commander. So he is trying to keep the English hold on Poitou against increasing pressure by the French king. So he's there until 1215 and ultimately John's attempts to recapture land that he'd lost in Normandy in 1204 are futile. And so the game is basically up for that huge chunk of land in, in northern France. And it becomes part of what we now know as the Kingdom of France. So by about 1215, Hubert is well established back in England and he has land all over the place. He has the equivalent of 50 what they call knight's fees in East Anglia. These are the areas of land required to finance one knight in knight service, as Dickon was explaining earlier. But he's also got land in Dorset, Somerset, Buckinghamshire, Hampshire, Surrey and Wiltshire. It's all over, as well as the, the Welsh border. And so in 1215, he becomes this important position of Justicia of England. And he retains this post, actually, until about 1232. And in a way, it's not a justice post at all. It's, it's the king's principal minister. So when the king is away, 
the justicia is the person who is in command of everything, actually. So it's a really, really important and powerful position up to this time. He also gets to be sheriff of another couple of counties, Kent and Surrey, and he has custody of more castles, including Canterbury, and even more land in East Anglia. And the north, actually, he's, he gets the honours of Peveril, which is in Derbyshire, and he gets the honour of Rayleigh in Essex, which is where he actually subsequently builds the castle at Hadley that we'll talk about a bit later. You mentioned that he was um, a guardian to Beatrice's children. Did he become a father in his own right by having children with her? He, he did, yes, he had a son. However, she actually dies, and in 1217, he married again. And he marries, actually, someone quite important, this King John's divorced wife, Isabella, Countess of Gloucester, and thereby also gets his hand on a lot of her lands as well. So he is really moving fast. You'd think he'd had enough by this point, had enough land, <laughs> that is. Um, well, yeah, you can never have enough land in, in medieval England. Basically. Absolutely. To cap it all off, he becomes an important figure during, as we've seen, the, the first Barons' War, which rages between 1215 and 1217. And he plays a very significant role, especially in the south of England. We've seen how he is you know, instrumental in keeping Prince Louis out during the two sieges of Dover. But he's also one of the principal players in the final defeat of Prince Louis and the barons in August 1217 in the sea battle, which takes place off the coast of Kent at Sandwich. And this, you know, this is a great moment. So to summarise all his roles, and we forget that we're talking about knights of castles here, he had chamberlain, royal chamberlain, constable, sheriff, ambassador, warrior knight, seneschal, landowner, justiciar of England, husband and father. And that's probably the core ones. There may have been a couple more. Uh, yes, and eventually Earl of Kent. Uh, right. he's, made an, uh, he's made an earl, which is, if you think about what earl meant at that time, it's kind of one step down from the king, isn't it? There aren't that many earls, so it's the pinnacle of where he can get to without being king. Now, just before um, Beatrice died in 1217, in 1216, there was another death, and this was King John's death of dysentery during the uh, Barons' War. So yeah. another king obviously comes to the throne. That's John's heir, Henry III. So how did Hubert get on with Henry III? Well, actually very well for quite some time. I mean, if you think about when John died in 1216, the young Henry III, who is his successor, is only nine years old. And so there is a period of another 10 years to go where he's in his minority. And so there are a number of individuals, including Hubert de Burr, who administer the country on behalf of Henry III. And actually, in a sense, he becomes a little bit less powerful, Hubert, because England is ruled by much more of a, a committee, if you like, or a council on which there are several people, including another famous knight called William Marshall, among others. And so for quite a number of years, the country is administered by this group, as well as the king's personal guardian, who was a man called Peter de Roche, who was Bishop of Winchester. And so power is more shared than it would otherwise have been if there was only a justicia in place. However, when the king comes of age in, I think it's 1223, Hubert once again became a major player and a major power as justicia, the king's second in command. By this time, Hubert has even more castles and even more land than some of the famous castles of the country, Canterbury, Dover, Rochester, Norwich, Orford, Hereford, plus a dozen more. So he's at the height of his power. 
1223, he campaigns with Henry III as a young king against the Welsh on the Welsh border, which is quite successful. And it's in 1227 that he's actually made the first Earl of Kent. So I think 1229 probably is the time when he's at the height of his power and he's made justicia for life. It's not taken away from him. He can have mm. it for life. And in possession of this massive, you could call it a barony, which is scattered all over England. But I guess the relationship began to change as Henry III got older and older and other people in, in his realm, in his court, began to exert their own influences. Yes, because I think by this point, obviously, if my maths is correct, he's probably, Hubert, in his 40s or 50s by the time Henry is coming of age. and uh, He's in his late 40s, yeah. Late yeah. 40s. So yeah. this is perhaps, in career sense, the decline of one's career, isn't it? And the peak has, has already happened. I understand there might have been a, a bit of a fall uh, with Hubert as well. He, Yeah, and it, it actually happens eventually quite quickly. In the late 1220s, Henry is still backing Hubert. I mean, they fight together in a pretty inconclusive campaign, actually, on the Welsh borders against a, a resurgent Welsh prince called Llewellyn the Great, who actually pushes the English back against you know, their aggression in trying to take over Welsh land. And it's not a very successful campaign for the pair of them. There's further fighting in 1231 on the border. Uh, and actually, this Welsh prince Llewellyn is very successful and manages to burn or capture quite a number of English castles. So militarily, the influence of Hubert is beginning to wane. And these failures, along with a totally useless campaign in 1230 that Henry launched in France in another attempt to recapture that territory that John had lost, actually contributed towards Hubert's downfall. But actually the downfall, as all courts are, there are rival factions. And the downfall was actually engineered by a number of people headed by this Peter de Roche, who was the Bishop of Winchester, and several associates who convinced Henry III that Hubert was failing meritarily, but also that he was squandering a large amount of royal money and land, and actually that he was also responsible for inciting a series of violent riots against pretty important clerics, foreign clerics, at the court. And so Hubert was arrested and pretty quickly stripped of all his royal castles, of his officers and of the justiciarship. Was so he also he, um, accused of treason? Well, that's effectively his treason. All those, the things that I mentioned beforehand are treason against the king. And so in October 1232, he has to appear before the king's court and throw himself on the king's mercy. It kind of works in a way. He does lose all of his royal possessions that are granted by the king, but he manages to hold on to his inherited lands and, and a few lands that he'd purchased. And he's, he's released, but he's put into custody of a number of knights and he's sent to Devizes Castle, Devizes in Wiltshire, that is, where, however, he was rescued, in a sense, by the Earl of Pembroke, who is actually William Marshall the Younger, the son of the great William Marshall, and he's taken to Chepstow because there's a bit of a minor rebellion going on uh, among a number of barons, including the Earl of Pembroke, against Henry III. And so, in a sense, he's free. What then happens is that in 1234, the activities of Peter de Roche, who had engineered the downfall, are also brought to attention. And he, in turn, is subjected to royal justice. And he falls. He was dismissed in 1234. And Hubert, in fact, is pardoned. 
Well, it's not the beginning of a resurgent Hubert, not really. And another attempt was made to make the treason charge stick in 1237. But that kind of fails and he survives again. But in effect, his career is very significantly finished in a sense. So he does do a few things in his remaining years, but he's effectively living quietly on the estates that he has left. Those years appear to have been peaceful. So between 1237 and 1243, six years, he lived pretty peacefully in semi-retirement and eventually died in 1243 in one of his manors, a place called Banstead in Essex. And he's buried at Blackfriars in, in Westminster in London. So a real rise and fall then. Titles acquired, titles lost, honour kind of restored by the end, would you say? In a sense, to have survived that long in a very turbulent period, in a court that was shot through with jealousy and treachery and people trying to climb the ladder. I think his career was amazing. And, and especially he, he spans that period between John and Henry III, where the, the civil war in England, and he emerges from it, having supported John for so long, he emerges as acceptable even to those barons who have fought against John. So I think that's testimony to the fact that he was a pretty exceptional individual and that he was able to walk in both camps successfully and probably quite genuinely, you know, because he was seen to be loyal and he was seen to be very, very capable. Well, let's see if we can talk about some other capable knights. We're going to talk about John Lovell next of Old Warder Castle fame. He was born in roughly 1342, died in 1408. He's connected, as I say, with Old Water Castle. That's in Tisbury, which is near Salisbury in Wiltshire. This is the first of two West Country castles we're going to discuss. Dick and I gather that John's family was actually, uh, although this castle is, uh, is Wiltshire, he's actually from Northamptonshire. Yes, well, the family of Lovell had been minor English nobility since the 12th century, and successive generations had been involved in royal service and participated in a number of major national events, such as you know, the Crusades, Edward the First Wars in Scotland, and one member even rose to the Treasurer of England. And so a culmination of the success led in 1297 to one of John's ancestors, who was another John. He was summoned to Parliament as John Lovell of Titchmarsh, which was a sign that he was of baronial status. And at this time, when the family was elevated to the peerage, the main family residence was Titchmarsh in Northamptonshire. And apparently that is of Alan Titchmarsh fame as well. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, and it's recorded that in 1304, John Lovell obtained a license to crenellate a house on the site. And in 1346, the house was described as a moated site enclosed with a stone wall in the manner of a castle. And indeed, if you go to Titchmarsh today, you will see rather sizable earthwork remains. Sort of the ditch is still three to four metres deep, up to 15 metres wide. And the island on which what we can assume was a considerable manorial complex is 70 metres square. So it's a sizable establishment they have in Titchmarsh. Unfortunately, in the two generations before John Lovell of Wardour Castle, the Lovell family actually had not been so, so successful because John's grandfather was killed at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, the famous victory of the Scots over Edward II. And this was extremely damaging to the family as his son was born posthumously 
and never managed really to fully recover the family standing. He was never summoned to Parliament. In 1344, he seems to have been imprisoned by a, a rival family who sort of uh, fighting a sort of a purely local little uh, war against each other. And in 1347, John's father was, may have been, although the records aren't clear, may have actually been murdered. So by the time John Lovell, our John Lovell that we're talking about, comes on the scene, he's sort of inheriting a rather precarious position that where the family is not doing so well. Right. What was his military career like then? Well, knights, members of the gentry and lower classes, knightly, uh, knightly families, one of the ways that they could progress their careers, better themselves, gain wealth, gain reputation, was through war and military conduct, as we've seen in the case of Hubert de Burr. And John comes of age in 1362, age 21, and he is appointed as a commissioner of a ray, so basically responsible for mustering soldiers, making sure they're in a fit condition for war in Middlesex and Northamptonshire in 1366 and 7. And he spends the rest of the 1360s and 1370s serving in France under Edmund Mortimer, the Earl of March, and John de Montfort, Duke of Brittany. He serves Mortimer again in Ireland, for which he's granted the manor of Great Hamilton in Rutland for life. So it's just it's actually showing you how his military, early military life is being successful for him. And he gains more military experience in 1378 at the Siege of Berwick, fighting alongside Henry Percy. Does this military experience earn him lands? Yes, it does. I mean, we know from um, from the Inquisition post-mortem after his life that he is gifted lands. He's also given jewellery, a a cup, which must have been quite valuable by the Earl of March for his service. So he is gaining favour, importance by greater lords. But probably his most interesting, perhaps unusual, military exploit in the early period of his life is that we know from a later contemporary or, or a contemporary source later in his life that he went on crusade as a mercenary to Prussia and then also the East Mediterranean. So not only is he getting experience in England, he's also going quite far abroad to get it. And while Prussia might seem a strange place for an English person to, or an English knight to gain military service. It became very, very popular for English soldiers and English knights from the, sort of the middle of the 14th century, the 1350s, to go on crusade in Prussia after the failure of the crusades in the east and for Jerusalem. It had been seen as a legitimate place for crusade as early as 1147, but hadn't become popular with English knights until later. I understand that as well as fighting abroad in the Crusades in Prussia, that uh, there was some influence uh, taking place there, obviously, in, in terms of uh, John Lovell's exploits. He also managed to exert some influence, I understand, through marriage. Yes, he did. He was fortunate in the fact that he married Maud Holland in 1371 to 3. We're not exactly sure about the date, but she was an heiress to a sizable estate in her own right, meaning she was the sole heir of her father and owned a number of manors. Um, and these, through the marriage, greatly expanded the number under Lovell's control, principally in the Midlands and the South. So sort of mirroring his own areas um, uh, of um, territorial significance. And indeed, it's, it's a shows just how important uh, the marriage was to him, that he adopted the name or the title of his wife along with his own, becoming Lord Lovell 
and Lord Holland. And he was the first baron to actually show the accumulation of baronies by using both. So it was clearly a big deal for him. More than that, through his marriage to Maud, he actually gained a connection to the crown itself and Richard II himself, whose mother had a previous marriage to the Holland family. So through that connection, he did gain a small, because the connection was quite distant, but a large enough little window into Richard II and his connection to his Holland half-brothers. I mean, Richard II, who reigned from 1377, has gone down as one of the worst kings in English history, mostly because of his autocratic tendencies. And Sounds a bit nobility. like King John. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there are definitely similarities. And nobility, in Richard II's view, was not necessarily a reflection of territorial wealth and past standing, who, who your father was and, and so on. But it was more of a lord standing in royal, or more specifically, his own favour. And so when he ennobled another relatively new knight, Michael de la Pole, in 1385. He said that, to quote, the more that we bestow honours on wise and honourable men, the more our crown is adorned with gems and precious stones. So he took that idea and decided to create a nobility, a courtly culture in his own image. And part of that was through his Richard II's love of courtly etiquette and the arts and his patronage. So a lot of listeners will probably know of the Wilton Diptych, the f- absolutely fantastic piece of art commissioned by Richard, certainly in his, in his own personal possession that's now in the National Gallery. Also his architectural innovations with Westminster Hall, which at the time was the largest non-aisled hall in Europe. And through this sort of love of the arts, he created this nobility of men who he bound himself by common interests and extensive endowments. And it seems that Lovell was one of these men who shared the king's interest in art and and so on. And John was appointed Master of the King's Hounds by Richard in December 1377. In 1383, he became a king's knight, served as one of a group of 10 bannerets attached to the royal household and also participated with Richard in Richard's own little compadre of knights when he went on campaign to Scotland in 1385. And this in turn enabled Lovell to gain lots of favour from Richard, including lands in Wiltshire, including Wardour. And he was made also Keeper of Devizes Castle. And it was really Richard who established him in Wiltshire as one of the, if not the leading magnate and representative for Richard in the southwest. So he had lands before his marriage. He then acquired more lands through his marriage. And then he got lands through his association with the king after his marriage. He did. Unfortunately, um, at least for Richard, who'd bestowed all these favours, when Henry Bolingbroke, loaded to be Henry IV, invaded and deposed Richard II, it appears that Lovell was actually one of the first to go over to Henry. And he certainly didn't raise too many complaints when Richard was deposed and continued to gain favour under the Lancastrians, including becoming a Knight of the Garter in 1405. So he certainly was flexible in his loyalty. Yes, he's done pretty well there. And uh, and that flexibility of loyalty uh, is pretty common, I think, with Hubert de Burr as well. Or at least mm. Hubert de Burr sounds like he's been very um, robust and able to sort of roll with the uh, changes of 
these times. So in total, do we know how many properties John Lovell had over his life, including Old Warder Castle? Yes, I mean, we're fortunate that he is a named person in the Inquisition post-mortem record, which were the records of death, the estate and the heirs of the king's tenants in chief, which were made for the royal fiscal purposes. And he had property interests in 14 English counties, which compared to nine of his of his father, which shows you, you know, how successful he was. And they were located in the Midlands and the South, principally still in Northamptonshire, but also now in Oxfordshire and Wiltshire. And it included numerous manors, many held in return for knight service. You know, the fact that you held land off a greater lord in, in return for having to often fight or give other service. But he also had lots of other small, smaller properties, including um, commercial ventures such as 12 shops in London. So, you know, he had a, um, many fingers in a lot of pies, but that meant that he had about £1,000 per annum which actually made him one of the richest barons and put his wealth on par with probably some earls as well. So he was incredibly rich. One of his principal estates, other than Wardour, was Minster Lovell, which is an English heritage site. But most of what you can see there now was built by his grandson in the 1440s. So nothing at Minster Lovell survives, or very little of John's day. But it really was old Wardour that was built by John and is a monument to his political ambition and the refinement of his um, architectural taste. But did he have a fall like Hubert de Burr had? Did any trouble come from all this acquisition of wealth, power, lands, influence? He did get into trouble from time to time. Probably the most potentially disastrous occasion was when, because as I was explaining, he was close in the circle of Richard II. In 1388, Richard was actually sort of arraigned by the Lord's Appellant, which were a selection of the higher nobility, including members of his own family, Thomas of Gloucester, but also the Earl of Arundel, Earl of Norfolk, um, Earl of Derby, who fought the Battle of Radcock Bridge and after su- successfully defeating Richard's and Robert de Vere's forces, expelled a number of his courtiers and executed others. Now, John Lovell managed to not get executed, but he was certainly expelled from the court at that time. He was later brought back by Richard, and as we've seen, he became a success, or was successful under the new Lancastrian king, Henry IV. But even then, he was involved in sort of more local disputes. So in 1391, for example, he was accused of unlawfully expelling uh, one Thomas Manston from his manor and imprisoning the tenants and committing other atrocities. But in the same year, on the other hand, he sued a number of people for attempted murder after claiming they'd assaulted him and caused damage worth a thousand pounds. So he's getting involved in more local disputes and there's other cases of him bribing sheriffs, under sheriffs and the juries. So he's behaving um, a bit like a not behaving child. particularly well. <laughs> a, a, a little bit, but really he's defending his interests against others and continuing his policy of accruing property and wealth, sometimes to others' detriment. And it, it's, part, it's part of that process. Did he die a rich man? Well, he certainly did. Yeah, as, as I say, with the £1,000 per annum, that did put him um, among the top barons in the country. And Old Wardour itself is a testament to the fact that you know, he, could, he could afford the best. The, the fact that he used the architect, master mason William Winford, who was certainly wouldn't have come cheap and because he was in regularly employed on royal building projects. The fact that he seems to have created an artificial water feature, a mirror. The fact that the, the stonework 
at Old Wardour is all cut stone. Again, none of that comes cheap. So he certainly died a rich man when he did die in 1408. Well, not far from Old Wardour is uh, Farley Hungerford Castle, which is the residence uh, and property of Thomas Hungerford, our next knight. He was born in or before 1328 and he died in 1397. So there's a bit of crossover between John Lovell and Thomas Hungerford in terms of when they lived. But Thomas Hungerford obviously is of Farley Hungerford Castle fame. This is the ruin south of Bath. Thomas Hungerford, though, was living around the same time, as we say, as John Lovell. But what about his rise to power, this Thomas Hungerford? He came from a locally important family who had a small number of estates in Wiltshire and the surrounding counties. And his grandfather and father had been elected to Parliament for Wiltshire and has really dominated that role as MP for the county between 1320 and 40. But there was nothing from that background that suggested anything greater. So it was really Thomas himself who managed to rise in the ranks through his own ability, through his own talent as essentially a land agent, an administrative wizard almost to greater lords. We know that he worked for the bishops of Salisbury and Winchester, and also William Montague, who was the second Earl of Salisbury. And so what we can imagine him doing, these greater lords, they were too busy, too rich, too important to really care about the work in the fields being done by tenants and so on. They were also peripatetic and traveling around the landscape. So they needed people at Thomas's level who would be sort of go-betweens and able to administer the land so that they were making the most money for their masters. And so we have plenty of records of Thomas in these roles. And for example, in 1365, he was made a steward of all of the Earl of Salisbury's lands at an annual fee of 20 marks. And he was to be paid even if he proved unable to perform his duties, which shows that he was valued also as a retainer, as a counsellor, as much as he was for anything else. Less of a militaristic bent, shall we say. A bit more of an admin guy. Definitely. And his career shows that you could become a knight, despite its military connotations. You know, you had many ways of getting into it, despite not really having any reputation as a military man. Instead, he was a sheriff of Wiltshire, a member of parliament, administrator. Most importantly, though, the reason his career really took off was because in 1372, he came into the service of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, who was the son of Edward III, and for much of the 1370s was effectively the power behind the throne because his father was ill, so was, um, so was his elder brother, the Black Prince. And John of Gaunt really held the kingdom together at that time. And Thomas was acting while Gaunt was doing these engaged on the national, national scene, was his steward, first of all, for the duchy land south of the Trent, and then for uh, even more than that, uh, whereupon Gaunt knighted him and made him a member of his council. And this link with Gaunt also gave Hungerford even more roles. He was a commissioner, an escheater, a justice in the duchy lands, bringing him considerable wealth, sort of £66 a year, plus expenses and, and perquisites. So the connection with Hubert de Burr that we heard about earlier is quite considerable in the fact that he managed to, once he was in, he managed to then accrue far more in quite a shorter period of time. That's pretty remarkable. So he's famous for quick acquisitions then, you could say. He was also infamous, wasn't he? He was primarily for his role as a speaker in the bad parliament, the parliament that sat from 27th of January to 2nd of March. And what had preceded it, 
was the good parliament. So parliaments are called good or bad or merciless. They're often given a title to just to help them, to explain them. The commons had managed to replace a lot of bad advisors and councillors that they were felt were in prejudice to the realm and they dismissed the king's mistress and all sorts of other things. Now, Gaunt, as the king's son and sort of leading government, wasn't particularly happy with this. And so when the bad parliament sat a year later, he managed to overrule renege on all these agreements. And Thomas Hungerford was elected speaker with Gaunt's clearly influence. And Hungerford was really Gaunt's, you could say, stooge in this parliament, making sure that Gaunt got his way. The chronicler Walsingham, for example, says that he was on the friendliest terms with the Duke and that Hungerford wished nothing to be pronounced other than what he knew would please his lord's eyes. And probably the thing that he could be called infamous for was that he made a formal request for the restitution of those found guilty and deprived of their titles and possessions in the good parliament. So despite being a member of the commons himself, he went against the act of the commons in the last parliament, but seems to have got away with it and doesn't seem to have suffered as a result. Thomas obviously built a castle at Farley Hungerford, south of Bath. It's a ruin today. Why did he build that castle? As you pointed out before, he was administrator, not a warrior. And so it could be seen as curious that he he wanted to build a castle. The site also has no natural defences. And so it's not a castle as perhaps the great castle at Dover was. It was more instead a fashionable, aristocratic residence that came as the culmination of his career. I mean, he bought the manor and there was an existing manor house there that he clearly decided was uh, suitable for conversion. He was also lucky in the fact that building in Farley Hungerford, he was building in, in an area without other major landowners. And so he built it as his principal residence for both him, himself, his family and descendants in order to sort of solidify his power and influence in Wiltshire. How long did he live there at Farley Hungerford? He bought it in in, uh, 1369 for £733, which is about 430 times the annual wage of a building (laughs) labourer. So it's it's considerable investment. And we know that from that date, 1369, it must have been built by 1383 when he actually had to get a royal pardon for having fortified his manor. You were supposed, at least, to gain a license to crenellate before you built a castle, but he obviously didn't do that and had to apply for a pardon later. And by the time the castle is complete, he's actually an old man. He's described as an old man in 1384 and then dies in 1397. So he had just over a decade in which to enjoy the castle. Oh, not very long then, really. A bit of a retirement uh, project, <laughs> you could it, say. It, it is, but you know, he did have sons and he was clearly thinking about the next generations who indeed were actually ennobled as Lords Hungerford. Mm. And with Thomas's building of the castle, they now had a proper building, proper castle in which to sort of found and host their new um, adherents as part of that new lordship. Yes, and hopefully take their influence forward into the future as well. Is Thomas Hungerford buried at Farley Hungerford, his home? He is. Visitors to the castle will be able to visit the church, the chapel of St Anne, where Sir Thomas has an absolutely magnificent funeral effigy of himself 
in armor buried next to his wife and the armor is completely up to date shows sir thomas as a man at arms ready to fight and defend for you know both himself and uh, his his lord and it's an interesting feature that despite having an administrative career he clearly valued the chivalric knightly ideal the fact that he built the castle the fact that he's displayed in armor on his death shows that the ideas of the knight were still strong Yes, that's very interesting. Perhaps I'll be buried uh, with a giant microphone or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But um, let's let's wrap things up then. So if we compare John Lovell, uh, who was our second knight from Old Wardour Castle in uh, Wiltshire, with Thomas Hungerford from Farley Hungerford Castle, south of Bath in, in Somerset, how important were their castles as statements of their power and influence? Well, for both of them, it was a culmination of their successful careers and solidification of their power and ambition in stone. You've got to compare, for example, in the the case of Lovell, the decline of that family in the generations previous to him had also been mirrored by the decline in, in their residence. So being able to build a new castle was really a sign that you were a successful man with power and money. Both were architecturally fashionable, Wardour especially, but even Farley Hungerford as a quadrangular castle that was built. Many were built in the 30s, 70s and 80s. And both of them also had a clear intention that they were building in order to host gatherings. Each had self-contained lodgings in which they could host a large number of people, adherents, military retinues, as well as having absolutely fantastic features, water features, powerful gatehouses, and use of fan vaulting at both. And both provided a powerful or a future home for their family. So I think they're very strong statements of power, influence and ambition for their families. For the yes. Paul, you've been listening in to uh, the John Lovell and Thomas Hungerford stories. Who was the best knight of all three? Who had the most power and influence, would you say? Or, or just who had the biggest property portfolio? Well, I, I think the biggest property portfolio was probably Hubert. But who was the best and most powerful? I think that's a pretty tricky question. Although Hubert de Burgh is regarded as arguably the most powerful justicia of the medieval period. I don't know what Dickens' take on that is. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't like to make a decision on that. And, and actually, power varies in time and circumstance, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, so it's a hard question to answer. But in case you're being more, I would say Hubert probably takes it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So we can all agree that Hubert de Burr's property portfolio <laughs> is the greatest. And um, I think also having to deal with King John and to survive that is worthy of a, a pat on the back, certainly. Lastly, then, Paul, when did oh. the age of knights come to an end, and why? Oh God, this is this is. So uh, when did very... day? When did day turn to night, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> this is a very difficult question. I think if you look at it from a the more narrow perspective of of the knight as a as a soldier as a military person, then it's it's easier to answer. Notwithstanding the fact that, as Dickon pointed out, you know, lots of medieval knights weren't actually soldiers. And the rank actually gave you access to all sorts of different career paths. However, in the popular imagination, you know, I think knights are equated with being soldiers, are they not? I think that's probably true. So I, I can pretty well deal with that aspect of the question. So it became increasingly difficult, actually quite early on in you know, the, the time of Hubert that I was talking about, for kings and barons to raise the amount of knights required for long service 
especially service overseas, because originally they had a, a term of service according to their feudal dues, which was 40 days. And so, you know, that's pretty difficult to sustain. So increasingly kings have to hire mercenary soldiers, if you like, uh, who have few or less feudal obligations. In some cases, they actually, kings created more knights by compulsion. So, you know, that there was like a property qualification that if you exceeded it, then you had no option. You had to become a knight, which then made you eligible for military service. So actually, the concept of a, a pure knight, if you like, begins to decrease because you've got all sorts of different combinations. And actually, their effectiveness on the battlefield as highly disciplined, well-trained, mounted soldiers, which is the essence of a knight, varied even during the heyday. So, for instance, they were enormously successful, you know, as a strike force. For instance, a battle I mentioned at Bouvines in 1214, when John is beaten trying to take back his French properties. You know, he's beaten effectively by mounted knights. And then you can contrast that with the disastrous charge of the French knights at Agincourt in 1415, because they fell under English longbows and the mud. Mm. So their effectiveness as an elite fighting force was questionable even during the high medieval period. But then we get to the Renaissance and the increasing scientific nature of warfare. And what you get is the introduction of massed infantry formations equipped with this thing called the pike, which is a seven meter long, up to seven meter long weapon, which can keep cavalry at a distance. And so these massed formations, coupled with the fact that we now have gunpowder, handguns and artillery on the battlefield, it meant that mounted soldiers, such as the knights, could only be effective if used in certain ways, and certainly not in massed charges. So there were no longer the shock troops, the shock and awe element of armies in the 15th and 16th century, as they perhaps once had been. Uh, and they become a tactical wing of a more flexible force, which we now call cavalry mm. yeah however knighthood remained throughout the 16th century we have jousts and tournaments i mean henry VIII was a great jouster and, and organizer of tournaments and they remained as a as a kind of show-off thing as a means of showing skill at horsemanship and arms and displaying your manly martial virtue but actually probably by the beginning of the early 17th century then the age of the knight as an elite fighting force or an elite fighting man at the center of the army was very largely over. And the cavalry that we see fighting during the civil wars are something different altogether. So anyway, despite this, cavalry, as opposed to knights, always retained this kind of superior cachet, attracting the better off and higher groups in society, right into the modern era, actually, when horse soldiers, cavalry, eventually morphed into what we know as mechanized armored units, tanks. But it had, for a long time before that, it had been infantry and artillery that did the hardest fighting on, on the battlefield. But if we leave that aside, if we take it as a rank, sir, then perhaps as a rank it's also gone, although we still have sirs, don't we? We do. But it's become more a reward and an honor than it was as something that got you access to high careers with a, 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 a baron or a king. Yes, these days it's more of a title that is earned. Exactly. Um, it's, it it's still exists. type thing. Precisely. But it's not part of the social structure of society anymore, which it was in the medieval period. 
and there's no training involved for it, it's kind of a reward for long or special service to the state. And there's no reciprocal arrangements on the part of the person who's knighted. But the origins, as Dickon explained, the origins of that actually can be seen in the in the Middle Ages. The idea of a secular knight in the orders of the garter and the order of the bath, etc. These at first were honours reserved for people of the highest distinction in the nobility in government service. But eventually, it's come down that it's now reserved for those distinguished by service in society at large, rather than for a self-appointed elite. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the new archaeological excavation taking place this summer at Bird Oswald Roman Fort in Cumbria. It's not, you know, Roman soldiers from Italy by any means interacting just with the native Britons. It's fascinating. The more you find out about the people who lived in and around the wall, the more you realise that complex nature of it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>